independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, which does not take corporate advertisers, and we really hope to keep it this way, we do need your help to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little bit a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and resources from each episode. When they conducted studies, when they, right, scientists, it's always a they, when they conduct the studies on temperature preference for drinks, they find that it actually changed across cultural contexts. And so, for example, Europeans who are accustomed to drinking room temperature tap water actually preferred room temperature tap water, even if they were super hot. And in the U.S., where people have become accustomed to having their glasses filled with ice and drinking ice water would prefer it that way. Kind of showing that cultural preference is a really important factor in how people desire particular thermal objects. So it's learned. In this episode, we welcome Hi'ile Julia Kavehipua Akaha Opulani Hobart who is Assistant Professor of Native and Indigenous Studies at Yale University. Her research is broadly concerned with Indigenous foodways, Pacific Island studies, settler colonialism, urban infrastructure, and the performance of taste. Her book, Cooling the Tropics, Ice, Indigeneity, and Hawaiian Refreshment on the Social History of Comestible Ice in Hawaii, investigates the thermal dimensions of Native Hawaiian dispossession. In particular, she's interested in how personal and political investments in coldness facilitates ideas about race, belonging, comfort, and leisure in the Pacific. To begin here, Hi'ile shares a bit about the historical role of ice in Hawaiian culture for Kanaka Maoli and how the ice trade commodified and turned ice on the islands into a mundane consumable good. One of the things that I try to be really clear about in this project is that it's not a history of how ice arrived in Hawaii, because it's always been in Hawaii. Snow accumulates at the top of some of our highest mountain peaks and some of our most sacred spaces. And because of that, ice in the cold always played a very substantial role in Mo'olelo, or the storied histories of Hawaii, Hawaiians had very highly articulated understandings of temperature, broadly speaking, and ice factors in really importantly to that. So when ice arrives in Hawaii, it doesn't arrive to surprise per se, 
but it arrives for the first time as a comestible good, meaning that the ice that first began to arrive on Hawaii's shores as part of the North American ice trade of the 1900s, it arrived in order to cool down things like soda waters and cocktails for Honolulu's elite. And I always found this really striking because of the enormous amount of expense and effort put into being able to offer somebody a chilled cocktail in Honolulu in the 1900s. Not a ton of ice arrives by ship to Hawaii around 1850 to 1860. That's kind of when these shipments came. They came really sporadically and were really a minor part of like the major North American ice trade that pretty much dominated export markets from Maine and Boston to places like India, to the Caribbean, and to the American South. To get to Hawaii, it had to go down the South American coast around the Cape Horn, up to San Francisco often for a stopover, and then across the Pacific. It would travel an enormous distance, constituting a fair bit of loss, but a surprising amount of ice retained in that shipment. Not very many years after this blip in commodity ice trade, ice machines start to arrive in Hawaii. And once the ice machines arrive, things kind of explode from there. And a lot of it happens in tandem with increased tourism and business trade in Hawaii. People were relaxing after doing business with ice creams and cocktails. And when that starts to happen, it begins to articulate a lot of things that are being imported from the West about race, particularly race in connection to who is imagined to be a leisured person and who is imagined to be a laboring person, right? And refreshment gets reserved for those who are not doing the laboring. And these are some of the ways that Hawaii gets connected to other plantation economy spaces, though the racial landscape is distinct across those spaces. But, but they have some they have some connections with how whiteness and refreshment kind of play out across each of those kind of areas. I also wanted, because I know this is a really important aspect, but the Hawaiian shaved ice and what that has come to symbolize and also what it has worked maybe intentionally to cover up in regards to Hawaii's history and the story of Native Hawaiians. So ice cream gets intensely valued by the end of the 19th and early 20th century. And this kind of happens at like the apex of American territorialism and the civilizing of Hawaii. By the mid-century, when the U.S. is really gunning for American statehood for Hawaii and a lot of local communities are also in support of statehood, the coldscape shifts a little bit and we see not the arrival of shave ice, but kind of the valorization of shave ice, right? It kind of skyrockets from this really mundane plantation store refreshment to something that starts to symbolize Hawaii in really important ways. 
And I found that really interesting because when you think about what shave ice is, it's essentially ice and sugar, right? These two kind of colonial enterprises in Hawaii. One of the reasons why shave ice becomes so popular is because it's not a white person's refreshment. It is a local person's refreshment and its attachment to the plantation communities is really important to telling the story about Hawaii's emergence as a multicultural state. Shave ice illustrates this in really powerful ways because of the colors of syrups that get drizzled on top of it. Shave ice is essentially an edible rainbow. And the rainbow becomes one of the most potent symbols of the multicultural state in Hawaii as it starts to pick up steam in the 1960s and 1970s. So people start to think about Hawaii as this multi-ethnic paradise. One of the issues with seeing Hawaii as such is the way that it obscures the really particular political subjectivity of Native Hawaiians under American occupation. Well, I know I asked a really far-reaching and big question, and we could, of course, focus just hours on each of the threads that you wove in here, but I really appreciate this overview for our listener. And you often talk about how in discourses on food sovereignty in Hawaii, people will share the statistic that Hawaii imports 85 to 90 percent of food despite having near year-round growing season and histories of abundance. And people also often attribute the expensive prices of food to the costs of transporting foods across the ocean from elsewhere. And while that is, of course, part of the story, another story you've been keen to highlight is the energy infrastructure controlled by energy monopolies needed to maintain the food during that transit. So what should we understand about what you named the cold chain in this context and a need to interrogate the energy intensiveness of this food system itself, as well as an over-reliance on this monopolized energy infrastructure? That's a great question. And you're right, these statistics about the over-reliance on imported foods in Hawaii are really highly circulated. They're super alarming and very often attributed to the cost of having to bring food such long distances to get to Hawaii. But when I started drilling down into the data, I was both surprised and kind of affirmed in the information showing me that, well, it's more complicated than, than what I'm giving you here, but it doesn't cost a lot of money necessarily to ship goods, but what is super expensive is keeping goods temperature controlled. Mm. And this is really important when it comes to food. People in Hawaii pay a lot more than the next most expensive state, which I understand is Alaska in order for things like refrigeration and electricity. So it's super expensive to ship food and keep it cold. Once it arrives in Hawaii, it still must be kept cold. And once it moves into people's homes, yet for longer, it must be kept cold. And those should really be seen as part of the bundled cost of being able to eat in Hawaii. Some of the things that I find most striking about this system are the extension of the cold chain, right? How refrigeration and thermal control 
facilitates the movements of goods across broad spaces is that when this starts to become part of the everyday way that people in the U.S. and elsewhere provision themselves with foods, it also shifts the temporality of how we eat, right? You can go shopping at the grocery store once a week, put things in your fridge and eat out of that for the rest of the week. And, you know, the temporality of food provisioning was really different when you had to worry about keeping things from spoiling. And while this focus has been on Hawaii more specifically, I think the general understanding of the cold chain in the food systems is applicable to many other communities around the world as well. And I've been thinking a lot about this because in a lot of conversations on climate change and energy, I would say the vast majority of that has centered on how we can switch the source of energy, but really while maintaining the same energy intensiveness of the system itself. And I say that not as a spotlight on individual energy use, although I think everyone should do what we can, but there's a need to recognize how the energy intensiveness of our day-to-day lives have been the result of concertedly developed systems that a lot of people are now a part of. Like a lot of workers might need to drive daily to work to make a living because of where they can afford to live and then what types of transportation are accessible or not. Or given that a lot of communities are increasingly reliant on imported foods due to a host of different reasons unique to every context, or how mass-produced imported foods are often even cheaper than responsibly grown local foods, how that also makes people more reliant on goods for survival made possible through a very energy-intensive system, Mm -hmm. where oftentimes similar industrial foods are exported and then imported, which never really made sense to me. But like in this economic system that we have with the monopolization of power, it has served to enrich the food giants, exploiting land and labor on both sides. So I'd just be curious what else you might add to this invitation to look beneath the surface and to make visible these parts of our lives that we may often accept as the norm, particularly in light of how integral the cold chain now is to a lot of people's lives and even how necessary it has become for a lot of people's sheer survival and especially for lower to middle class families who may find the sense of security of refrigeration to be even more important? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's really well put. One of the ways that I've approached this is thinking through what infrastructure hides and when infrastructure becomes visible to us. A number of years ago, a scholar named Susan Lay Starr did a bunch of work around infrastructures and essentially said that functional infrastructures tend to disappear from site, right? Once they kind of become embedded in our everyday, we start to forget that they're there. And we start to lose sight of the fact that they profoundly structure how our lives are made to work. Another theorist, Brian Larkin, followed up not very many years later and was kind of like, well, hang on. I think that infrastructures become invisible for those that they are designed to serve, right? Mm -hmm. And people that the infrastructures are not designed to serve are actually usually really keenly aware of it, right? It's like when you think about the bus system, right? The bus system exists and is part of the city infrastructure, but anybody that takes the bus every day knows that it never, it's, it's always coming late. It's often breaking down. It's really difficult to navigate. 
And so one of the things that I'm trying to highlight is the fact that, so when it comes to refrigeration, I think that so many of us have just come to accept that that's what needs to happen in our lives. That's how things are done. A lot of us are actually incredibly dependent on it. But I think in the food sovereignty conversation, very little attention has been paid so far to like what that means for food sovereignty in general, like how those dependencies can sometimes be overlooked when we're talking about what it means to become sovereign. Mm. And also to go deeper into what infrastructure hides, something else I've been thinking through are all these new emerging labels and certifications in food and other agricultural products like organic cotton for textiles or other labels denoting certain standards in the manufacturing processes. And I'm not saying that we should do without these labels because given the infrastructures of manufacturing that we have today, given the types of market-dependent options that many people are reliant on, a lot of these labels help people to become more informed consumers. But especially as I think back on my conversation a while ago with Rebecca Burgess of Fibershed, I also wonder whether we might understand this constant increase in more and more labels and certifications to denote trust also as a reflection of a loss of community and perhaps an increase in a sort of disconnect. I agree with that completely. I'm glad that you are bringing up these different types of certifications and labels, because I think that on the one hand, they are designed to guide consumers in particular kinds of ways. And I think it's also really important to notice that they are guiding consumers, right? Not people who are like just out there in the world, but people who are investing capital in particular types of companies, right? These are These are people with wallets and dollars to spend, and it's also marketing. One of the things that I've been casually following are the main state food sovereignty laws, which are super fascinating. Have you talked to anybody about those before? No, I don't think so. Oh, my gosh. So maybe like 10 or so years ago, a bunch of farmers and food producers in the state of Maine lobbied the state legislature to permit this particular food sovereignty law, which essentially exempts small producers from having to abide by USDA food safety laws if Mm -hmm. they are trading goods or selling goods within their own county. So essentially to their neighbors, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea is that the state of Maine, as a largely rural state, has depended on this for their food economy for a really long time, right? You go down the street to buy raw milk from your dairy farmer neighbor, and that raw milk is going to be safe because there's a social contract there. And that social contract gets lost when you start trading goods across long distances. This becomes one of the impetuses for the the pure food laws of the early 1900s in the United States. Yeah, and you are cueing me right into my next question for you, because as we think about these certifications and labels, it's also important to recognize that they're based off of very certain standards. And it's important to ask, like, who gets to set those standards? 
And you gave a really fascinating talk on the microbiopolitics of poi, which really inspired me to rethink the concept of food safety, who gets to define it, and importantly, whose cultural food ways it works against or even criminalizes. For instance, you share of poi, which is a traditional Hawaiian fermented food made from kalo or taro. You can find industrially made poi at most grocery stores in Hawaii, but truly delicious poi is a handcrafted food that fundamentally goes against the pasturian sensibilities of the modern American state, which has come to prioritize sterility over the flourishing of microbial life. Poi is, in the words of Heather Paxson, a microbiopolitical object, a food subject to hygienic regulatory governance concerned with health and so-called safety, end quote. So on this note, how would you elaborate more on the nuanced politics and legality of food safety and particularly using poi as an example? Oh, well, you made me sound very smart in the quote that you just gave. But one of the things that I was really trying to trace are the genealogies of these laws, right? Laws don't come up like they don't come out of the ether. They're not just made up, but they have really fundamental genealogies to them. And we have to think about, right, the formation of these laws in context. In Hawaii, these laws get imported over in the early 20th century, just after the territorialization of Hawaii, when U.S. food laws start to impact the Hawaiian foodscape. These laws enter into a society that is racially divided. It enters into a society where there's a lot of consternation about bodies and people of color, particularly Native Hawaiians and white settlers coming up with all kinds of ideas about Hawaiian lasciviousness, lack of cleanliness, relaxed morals, right? There's a deeply racialized and moralized subtext to laws that start to prioritize sterility and purity. And poi becomes one of these foods that comes really quickly under fire because of it being a handmade food, right? You touch this food, it ferments as it comes into contact and is prepared by the hands of the maker, right? It's a live food. In the last, you know, 15 or 20 years, there's been an increased attention to fermented foods in the American marketplace that I think have sometimes lost sight of this legal landscape that made them taboo or illegal, historically speaking. Mm, And this is really interesting because poi, along with other fermented foods, have historically and to this day helped a lot of communities to be less reliant on refrigeration for preserving food and for food safety because fermentation has been a way of preserving foods for longer while at the same time enhancing their nutritional qualities through how they engage the microbial world. And I certainly don't want to overgeneralize, but I do wonder if there's an element of truth in seeing a need and in some cases imposed need for refrigeration as control, as people systemically have become more and more reliant on centralized food systems with globalized supply chains, 
that need for a very specific form of food safety defined in a very particular way. And also just as opposed to communities, particularly indigenous communities, being able to practice their diverse traditional place-based food ways that are much more reflective of the diverse characteristics and seasonalities of the land basis and water ecologies themselves. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think control is a big part of this conversation. A lot of the fermented foods that we consume today, if you're a consumer of fermented foods, is probably along the lines of kombucha, which is now you know regulated by the FDA for public consumption as well, right? So there's a limit to the liveliness that is often permitted about these foods. The other thing, which I think sometimes gets lost in the discussion of cuisine and valuing particular foods for what their benefits may be, is that sometimes, and particularly when these are indigenous foods, is that people forget that these are incredibly political conversations, right? Indigenous politics is a huge cornerstone for why we need to advocate for particular types of foods. Food sovereignty also has to do with negotiations with the settler state, right? It's not just determining what one's food system looks like because somebody wants to grow something. It's also land use laws. It's water use laws. It's so much more complex than a particular fermented food having health benefits. Yeah, so I want to bring in this quote from you in your talk on this subject where you share, there is also the more subtle dimensions of knowledge and power that drive Western dietetics that often treat digestive health as separate from political context rather than expressive of them as native Hawaiian epistemologies helps us to understand. So yeah, I do think there's often this separation of diet and health from the political context that have helped to shape how people perceive things like food safety and what it means to, for example, consume a healthy diet. So that's, of course, a really important and big subject that warrants a lot more conversations on. And here I want to pivot into what you call ambient sovereignty. So across your work on the ambient is this theme of, again, a desire to control our ambient temperature, especially as we consider the luxury or need for things like air conditioning or the craving or need for something as mundane to the American culture as ice water. And of course, there is a fine line or sometimes a little overlap between needs for survival and desires for comfort and pleasure. But perhaps contrary to what a lot of people might believe, in a sense, both can be cultural constructs and the products of the systems that we have been born into and have have become a part of today. So can you expand more on how we might recognize our desires for certain things or tastes for pleasure, not as necessarily innate to us, but rather as cultural products? And also speak more broadly about how you've thought through people's or particular cultures desires to control temperature and what that could signify. Yeah, I think, well, I think you're asking me two questions bundled into one. And so I may treat them a little bit differently. First, with thinking about like ambient sovereignty is in 
In my investigations into the thermal, I had to kind of map out, you know, what does cold mean? What does hot mean? And when I initially came to the project, I was thinking about these two things at either end of a spectrum, which I think is generally how we think about temperature, right? Hot to cold, cold to hot. It runs, you know, across the spectrum. And as I was digging into Native Hawaiian epistemologies about temperature, one of the things that I kept noticing is that hot and cold were occasionally used interchangeably or hot and cold became marshaled as part of a similar expression of, you know, anger or love, so intense emotions. Mm -hmm. And at the other end of that spectrum was neither hot nor cold, but ambient. And that was really useful to me for reframing how we might think of temperature. You know, what, what is allowed to happen when we let go of control over environment and over temperature? What happens when we let things settle and calibrate to its environment? And for me, that is a little bit of an ungrounded proposition, but I think it lets your mind go someplace other than the spectral kind of overbearance of temperature to think about what happens when we just relax into things. In terms of how this works with our bodies in space, when I first started doing this work and I kind of started in the final quarter of the 19th century, that was like the first chunk of the project I took up, which is pretty ice cream heavy. So I'm giving these presentations on ice cream and all of the ways that it becomes this kind of complicated food in the Hawaiian foodscape at that time. And people would always stop me and they would be like, well, I'm hang on. I mean, weren't people just eating this because it's really delicious? Like, aren't people just having cold drinks and cocktails because they're super refreshing and they feel good? Like, this is a very natural reaction for a human body to have and for a human body to desire. And that required me to step back and really think about what gets learned and what gets naturalized and normalized as part of cultural performance. And so I had to dig into the science a little bit, and I'm not a scientist, so I'm sure somebody listening would probably be more than happy to correct me. But when you consume cold things, it actually doesn't measurably change one's body temperature. So if you're drinking something cold, to cool yourself down, you're actually not cooling your body in any kind of significant or substantial way. Scientists, as they tell me, say that instead of cooling, the body receives a sense of thirst satiety. This is actually what they say we're feeling. Hmm. But of course, we know that you get hydrated the same way as if you're drinking a gallon of warm water or if you're drinking a gallon of cold water. When they conducted studies, when they, right, scientists, it's always a they, when they conduct the studies on temperature preference for drinks, 
they find that it actually changed across cultural contexts. And so, for example, Europeans who are accustomed to drinking room temperature tap water actually preferred room temperature tap water, even if they were super hot. And in the U.S., where people have become accustomed to having their glasses filled with ice and drinking ice water, would prefer it that way, kind of showing that cultural preference is a really important factor in how people desire particular thermal objects. So it's learned. It's really fascinating to consider how a lot of people see our preferences and desires as sort of being self-determined and innate, when in reality, a lot of that actually has been shaped by our cultural and social conditioning. And I think this conversation is really provocative in some ways, because especially as the climate crisis leads to more extreme weather conditions and temperatures around the globe, and at the same time as people's bodies become more accustomed to more controlled and limited ranges of ambient temperatures and therefore less adaptable and more limited in our conceptions of comfort, it also creates a greater need for people to turn to technologies like air conditioning or heating for our well-being and survival. And of course, the how is a big part of this equation, right? Like what practices are people engaging in to stay cool or warm? Because people have, of course, always done that to an extent. Or what is the source of energy being used to create more comfortable ambient temperatures? And then there are also broader questions about how certain solutions to the climate crisis, which I see as a symptom of a planet in distress, calling on us to listen to those symptoms to change our ways, have instead been about doubling down on controlling the climate through things like geoengineering or blocking the solar rays or things like that so that we can maintain the dominant culture's ways and the same extractive economies. But how might we consider a lot of our desires to reign in climate change to keep the temperature rise under some level of control? Because that also, in a sense, is about control in order to maintain our human-centered comforts and desires? I think it's really tricky because very often in questions about climate change, there's like a royal we that gets invoked that is a completely false royal we, right? And so like, what are we going to do about climate change begs questions about who is responsible for climate change, who can, right, who has the latitude to do the most in regards to climate change? There's a huge gulf between people that are trying to survive and people that are making themselves comfortable as things become more volatile and more uncomfortable in the world. I feel like people often perceive progress as an improvement in our quality of life with comfort being a part of that. So I can see people acclimated to temperature controlled spaces with temperatures maintained within a relatively small range considered quote unquote room temperature not being willing to give that up and instead in the name of justice wanting for everybody to be able to experience and have access to those same comforts. And here I wouldn't be referring to situations that would be a matter of survival, but more so just the daily comfort of not even feeling hot enough 
while sedentary to sweat or not feeling cold while sedentary without, say, a sweater on or something. Or strangely, in many indoor spaces for particular cultures, it might even be the conditioned comfort and sense of luxury of being cool and even cold, requiring people to wear sweaters inside while it is actually nicely warm or hot outside. But still, I'm just thinking about this idea that people with justice in mind may not reach the conclusion of, you know, let's stop controlling our ambient temperatures because it requires a lot of energy to do so and is a luxury for many instances, but rather conclude, let's help everybody to be able to control their ambient temperatures, maybe with a presumption that the ability to do so is universally seen as desirable. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the rub, isn't it? (laughs) You know, so often, I think that progress is a top-down proposition. Progress has been used to invoke all types of Things like westward expansion in the Americas, the development of the transcontinental railroad, refrigeration, all different types of technologies that have political effects. And so instead of, you know, top-down progress, what I'm more interested in is listening to communities in place that know best what their particular needs are are going to be and how those needs might be met. So what I advocate for is self-determination within communities themselves to think about how they might want to approach and address climate change, knowing that the vast majority of climate change is beyond our control, right? People are going to be grappling with extreme temperatures in ways that historically they may not have. Right. That's not that's not something that a community can necessarily control, but they should be listened to when it comes to their ideas of how it can be mitigated. And we are nearing the end of our time together. I know that the Kanakamali-led resistance against the 30-meter telescope on Mauna Kea has been for you where your personal and professional lives have converged. And in light of this, you've offered a call to expand our perspectives of food sovereignty that I found to be really potent and important, particularly as people might point out the sort of disconnect between Native Hawaiians asserting sovereignty and self-determination and the types of reliance on, for example, industrial and centralized foods that these camps from very immediate mobilizations might still have. So as we take a step back to consider the seeming necessity of the cold chain today for people in Hawaii and beyond, and the goal of food sovereignty, how would you connect the dots here? And what are your final takeaways for our listeners as we think more deeply about our food systems through the lens of control and power? It's a really good question. I write a little bit about being at the encampment at Pu'uhonua o Pu'uhuluhulu. And I only went for a few days. I had a baby in New York, and I just went for the amount of time that I could. And I wasn't even thinking about this at the time, but I started volunteering in what was essentially the camp's refrigeration section in the kitchen. And it wasn't until many months later, I was like, oh my gosh, I've been writing a book on the cold (laughs) in Hawaii this whole time. And how did I not make this connection? Mm. But I've spent a lot of time thinking about what the kitchen looked like at the camp at that time. And there were, I mean, people were just bringing 
what they had, right? What they could pull out of their pantries, what they could grab at fast casual restaurants, what they could pick off of their trees in their backyards. And you got this full spread of like what community resourcing looked like. And not all of it was what folks might recognize as like a decolonial diet or foods that reflected a bunch of the food sovereignty ideals that are often discussed in the literature. But what it was were people making it possible to have bodies in place in a space of resistance. And for me, that became so much more important than picking apart whether or not this or that was industrialized food or whether or not there was this reliance on the cold chain, but really, you know, what does it take to get bodies in place and to get communities working together in resistance? And for me, that's really the bigger picture to pay attention to because that is where, that's where sovereignty lies for me. What has been one of the most impactful texts that you've read? This summer, I read Leanne Simpson and Robin Maynard's new book, Rehearsals for Living. And it's, I think it's one of the most beautiful things that I've ever read. And the book is a series of letters written back and forth between these really important thinkers in both Black studies and Native and Indigenous studies. And they're about resistance and it's about crisis and they're basically like political love letters that I'm, they're just really gorgeous. Mm. What is a personal motto, mantra or practice you engage with to stay grounded? I struggled with this one because the thing that came up in my mind was like one thing that I always ask myself at particular junctures where maybe self-doubt is holding me back from going for something is I've started just telling myself, like, why not me? And this is really important because I think as, as women, as Indigenous people, we talk ourselves out of putting our hat in the ring because we have been led to imagine that we don't belong in the ring. And so I've started asking myself, like, why not me? In order to kind of, like, hype myself up <laughs> for um, kind of going for it. I love that. And what is uh, one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? Well, right now I'm working on a new project that is at a really different like time period than I'm used to. It's stuff that's happening, was happening in Hawaii in the late 70s and early 80s, like right before 
I was born. And so my source of inspiration right now is getting a chance to talk to elders who were there at these particular moments in time and capturing their recollections, knowing that knowing that they're getting on in their years. And that's been a really special and fulfilling thing for me to do. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a wrap here, but we have quite a few links to Hi'ile's work and Twitter and the references mentioned throughout this episode that will be linked in our show notes, which you can find at greendreamer.com. And Hi'ile, what a really fascinating conversation for me here. We're so excited for the launch of Cooling the Tropics, publishing in December of 2022. And yeah, just thank you so much for joining me here today. For now, though, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? <gasps> I don't know. Um, <laughs> final words of wisdom? I No, I don't know if I have wisdom so much as I have gratitude. Mm-hmm. I'm just really grateful that people are interested in dialoguing with me and helping me think through these ideas. I consider myself so much of a learner. So it's really exciting to get to think aloud with you and with the listeners. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. And to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support. So if you value independent media and counterculture conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Tear Down the Wall by Forest Vale. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>